All right, so we're in the Gospel of Luke. I want to read uh, 31 through 46 to you, and then we'll turn to the Lord in, in prayer, and then I'll try to describe what I want to talk to you about this morning because it's such a large picture. And anytime I try to paint a picture this big, I wind up getting frustrated on Sunday afternoon, my wife will tell you. And so uh, let's read it and then we'll turn to the Lord in prayer and I'll explain that to you um, some more. So look with me in verse 31 and let me remind you that this is the word of our Lord. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what stands written about me now has its fulfillment. And of course, they missed the whole point. Verse 38. And they said, Lord, look, there are two swords here. And he said to them, that's enough. Verse 39. And he came out and he went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I praise you and I thank you for just the privilege of worship. Father, graciously calling us into relationship with you and then giving us the opportunity to call out to you in prayer and sing to you in praises and adoration and then sit before the word, your word that you have given to your people in order that we might know who you are and what you have done to reconcile us to yourself. So, Father, we glory in all of those things. We glory in the grace and in the love of God. And as we meet now before your word, I pray that we would be disciplined enough to steal our minds and our hearts and turn on the ears of our soul so we can hear the words of life the word that brings us into life, the good gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the words that flow out of the gospel that allows us to bear fruit of this new life that we are given in him. So, Father, I pray for words that are not confusing, that are clear. I pray for words that are faithful. And I pray for humility for us all, that we would allow the word of God to change how we think. 
You know, we might think in a way that pleases you in order to live in a way that pleases you. Lord, we love you and we thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So when we roll into these passages, I, got, I started out last week and I got home and I was totally frustrated. This is such a grand picture. And so you got two options when you approach a, a, a painting this size. You can just point out all the details and never leave it to you to unveil the finished painting, if you will, so you can see it in all of its glory. You'll get lost in all the details if you do that. The other option is to just ignore some of the smaller details and let you see the grand painting, paint out a, a, point out a few of those things, and then go on and roll into the next passage. And you know me, I don't like to leave any details on the table because it's in seeing the details that you can move back and appreciate the painting so much more. Now, we're moving from the faithfulness of God to the faithfulness of God. And then at the end, Lord willing, I will challenge you with our own faithfulness. But to paint the faithfulness of God at the cross, there is so many brushstrokes and so much detail that's going on. And I want you to appreciate every single brushstroke so that when we take two steps back from this picture that we have in the text, you will glory in Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us on Calvary. Because there's so much that went on before Calvary. There's so much that are going on within these days of Calvary. And then the glory continues for the rest of eternity. So I'm trying to point you to the details and then draw back and look at the painting. And let me just tell you, the painting is the faithfulness of God in the person of Christ. So that's where we're going this morning. As I carry you down, don't forget the bigger picture. Now, as far as the Bible goes, this book sings of the faithfulness of God from beginning to end. When you look at the Old Testament record, it's just this repeated theme of faithfulness time and time again. And when we think of the Israelites, and yes, you need to think of them because it gives us a picture of who we are now. But when you think of the Israelites, they enter into this relationship with God with a tremendous act on his part of faithfulness by delivering them out of slavery. That's how they were introduced to this great God. He is a deliverer and he is faithful to deliver his people. And so he does so in this physical way from slavery. Now, after that is this long history of deliverance upon deliverance and you constantly find God being faithful to deliver because most of the time they need deliverance because of their own rebellion. And God continues to be faithful in spite of the fact that they're rebelling against him. Now, when you move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, again, we see the faithfulness of God and we see it in the person of Christ. The Lord Jesus, before he ever, ever comes in Hebrews 10, and we've walked through the book of Hebrews and you'll remember, before the Lord comes, He commits Himself to the will of the Father. He commits the entirety of all that He is in the flesh to the will of the Father. And of course, that means a great many things, right? He was tried in every way. He was tested by Satan in the wilderness. He was tempted by sin in all things, Hebrews again says. He lived under the constant threat of religious leaders. He was rejected by His own people. He was discouraged by the lack of faith from his own disciples, the 12 of them. He was betrayed by a close friend. 
He was handed over to ruthless and godless people who put him to death. And he died as an innocent and sinless man for our sins. And he was faithful every single step of the way. He was never not faithful. He was faithful in everything that he did. And it is by this perfect faithfulness that you and I are reconciled to God. Plus nothing. We are justified by even the things that we see surrounding Calvary. And then certainly by the action of Calvary when he lays down his life. And we have to remember that. And I had to pause this week and glory in that fact. I bring nothing to the table. It is not my faithfulness. My faith rests in his faithfulness. I trust in every single step that the Lord Jesus took. Because he was perfect in everything that he did. But we cannot ignore the fact that everything around him was against him. Everywhere he turned, it was opposition and discouragement on top of opposition and discouragement. There was no relief. There was no respite. There was no breath for the Son of Man until he breathed out his last. There was nowhere for him to sit and relax. So the New Testament record is no different than the Old Testament record because the church in the New Testament begins its relationship with God by a tremendous act of faithfulness on his part to deliver us. The Israelites walk into this relationship based on the faithfulness of God to deliver. The church walks in its relationship with God. First act, God delivers them based on his faithfulness and he did that through the work of his son. So let's get into some of these details of seeing that faithfulness. Now let, me, let me pause because I noticed something this week driving down the road. I passed by church signs. I read church signs. And the, and the sermon title was How Not to Be a Scrooge. And you know what it's going to be more than likely. Five things, three things, however, much, however long he preaches on how not to be a Scrooge. And if I, if I had gone this morning, I probably would agree with things that he says, I don't think he would say anything unbiblical, but the approach itself is fallible for this one particular reason. I know that if you glory in the faithfulness of Christ, I won't have to give you five things to do to not be a Scrooge. This is how this works. You see our grand example of our Savior and the closer You draw to that picture and the more that that picture fills your soul, the more like you become of him. You don't need five things because then you have to remember five things. Let me just turn your eyes toward Jesus. And let's look at all the details that we just are blown away that and yet he remained faithful. And when you see him, all of his glory, you won't be a Scrooge. You'll have a grin on your face. Because of this great God and his love that has been displayed. Now let's talk about Judas. And we did last week, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time with this guy. No one ever betrayed God before quite like Judas. No one has ever betrayed God since quite like Judas. Judas was one. And Judas was chosen by God to do what he did. Yet he was fully accountable for everything that he did. 
But no one is ever going to take his place. No one is ever going to fill those shoes. There was just one Judas, one betrayer of God, and he was set aside for those purposes, yet he had a great deal of help from Satan. And I say that because I need to remind you, 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 cannot, you cannot betray Christ in that way. Yet, there's something there for us to learn. And this is what I wanted to bring out. There's, in all of these little brushstrokes, there's a little thing for us to learn. And the thing for us to learn regarding Judas has to deal with this issue of money because he exchanged his Savior for silver. And when you put that on paper and you begin to look at it, you think, how foolish could you be? But we have to remember that we live in a world that constantly exchanges everything and anything to replace the glory of Christ. And we're going to get to that in the book of Romans. This world is sick and dying because it cannot get a vision of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're satisfied, trying to satisfy themselves by exchanging everything for that glory. And certainly money is one of those things that they're convinced it will pacify or satisfy them. So they exchange the glories of Christ for money. And so we have to realize, now that I can do. I can't betray Christ like Judas did. But I certainly can set aside my Savior by lusting and pursuing wealth and possessions of this world. That's a constant trap or, or trip or trap for all of us. We all have this likeliness to do that. And it's worse the more that you get. I know that from personal experience. So we have to be very careful. And that's why we find all these passages in Scripture that deal with this. And again, I'm going to run through this quickly. We talked about them last week. The Lord said, no one can serve, no servant rather, can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other. He'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't do it. And I told you last week, like I've told you before, if I read that passage every week, it would do us well because we need to hear that every week. You know, I, I, there's so many men in my past they were so excited, they said, because the Lord gave them a new job or, or a, a pay raise or, or a higher position or something. Oh, but now they're going to miss Sunday. But they're so thankful for the Lord giving them that. And I'm like, the Lord didn't give you that. His desire for you is for you to worship Him. And I do realize that that sometimes gets moved and you don't appreciate that, but you do understand this is what God has done. He's given you worship. And he intends on you to come into the congregation and lead your family in worship. And we have to be careful with these things. Another thing that the Lord says in 1 Timothy 6, those who want to get rich fall into temptation, a snare, many foolish and harmful desires, and notice which plunge men into ruin and destruction. I can't fix that. Ruin and destruction means this, ruin and destruction. Pretty simple. And so we really have to be careful that not only we follow in a faithful path, but we teach our kids to follow in a faithful path regarding these things as well. Now, it wasn't just Judas's betrayal, but we also talked about the fact that it was the disciples' argument that was another strain on the Lord. And I don't think any of us would verbally engage in an argument about which of us is the best servant at Corinth. That's bizarre. But I do know the flesh, and I do know myself, and I do feel and sense often that continual pull of pride in my own heart. 
And if you ever want to get to digging around in your own heart, you want to discover the bottom of your depravity. Once you get to the bottom of that dark hole, you're going to find pride. There is something within all of us that wants to elevate ourselves among those people that we're around. And so while we might not actually say, I'm better than you, which we might do that jokingly, and we would never do that audibly, sometimes we feel that way. You ever get this attitude in your heart? I can't believe they said that to me. Why can't you believe that? Are you special? How dare you? Who do you think you are? Now, sometimes we say that, but most of the time we just feel that. And then we go home or we get in our car and what do we say? They're an idiot. Because we think so much of ourselves, we can't believe you would offend me in this way. You have to understand that's, you can draw a straight line from that attitude to the argument of the disciples about which of us is the greatest. It's a straight line. And so we have to be so careful. There's something to learn in that brushstroke. And we have to remember that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Every single time. And it's a chore for me to walk in humility. To be selfless like my Savior. There was no pride in Him. He was God and is God, but He laid aside that glory and took on weak flesh and came here to be cursed, spit upon, beaten, and crucified. He held their life in His hands as they tortured and killed Him. And in a breath or in a moment or even a thought for God, He could have completely consumed their existence, yet in humility and meekness He hung and He died in their place. And so we're called to have that same kind of attitude. And so we need to learn from that brushstroke. But I think probably the most significant brushstroke, uh, brushstroke for us to learn is, is Peter's denial. Certainly we come to that this morning. And I want us to sit down and, and think about this for just a few moments because there's two sides to this coin that you have to consider. First of all, there is the supernatural side of things, which Peter did not get at all. And then there was the physical side or the Peter side of things that he completely blew and, and walked perfectly in what the Lord said. But the first thing that we have to draw near is this supernatural side where you see God at work and you see Satan at work as well in Peter. First of all, the thing, let's start with the supernatural side of God. What Peter did in his denial was predetermined and predicted by God. Now, when I use the word predicted, I want you to understand, be careful with that word because our God is so much more than what some people think. Some people just merely think that God's watching the world unfold on some grand television set in heaven, except he's got it set about 24 hours in advance and he knows what's going to take place. That's not our God. Amen. Our God has predetermined these things. He is not surprised by anything because he set all things in motion and he's ordained it all. So this was predetermined and predicted. Look at verse 34 of Luke chapter 22. Notice what our Lord says to Peter. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, in Luke twenty-two thirty-four, 34, the rooster will not crow this day until... You deny three times that you know me. Of course, Peter responds in the flesh. 
Nah, Lord, I'm, really, I'm just willing to get arrested and, and even die for you. Now, hopefully, we understand the sovereignty of God a little more than that. Because if the Lord ever says something similar to you, you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows. Just go ahead and find the chicken. Because he is close by. You need to understand what he says, it shall come to pass. Stop acting like you're going to change those things. So Peter had his opportunity, but Peter trusted in himself rather than trusting in Christ. We have to understand that our God has allowed these circumstances in our life. And I want to be sensitive here. I currently am in no dire set of circumstances, which means tomorrow I may very well be. But it's a good time if you're not in dire circumstances to remind yourself that all circumstances are well and safe in the arms of God. Nothing has escaped his notice. So praise God if you're not there right now. But tomorrow you probably will be. So go ahead and settle your mind today that the circumstances of tomorrow have been predetermined and predicted by the Lord. And I shall walk by faith. And I will not lose sight of his glory. But not only was it predetermined and predicted by the Lord, I want you to also notice Satan was at work. Look with me in verse 31. Luke 22, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. This is a very interesting word. Demanded is, and if I had it up here, I'd throw it up here on the slide for you. It's a difficult word, but you you know what it means in English. But what's fascinating about this word, this is the only time it's used in the Bible. Luke's the only one that uses this particular word. And it's difficult to discover the meanings of these words. It wasn't written demanded. It was written in the Greek. And it's difficult to discover the actual meaning of that word because the more words used, the more context that you find it in, a little clearer the picture gets as to actual what the meaning was. So this is a very difficult word. Why was it? How was it that Satan could demand anything from God? But I think that we can understand that that better if we look at Matthew chapter 16. I was going to have it up here on the board for you, but I want you to see it as well. I'll put it up there if you don't have your Bibles. But run run with me to Matthew chapter 16. And hopefully we can understand how was it that Satan demanded such a thing from the Lord. Now... I want you to pray this week if it comes to mind. We're not in the book of Matthew, but we're in the same moment in the gospel of Luke with release time. I've spent the last several weeks teaching them about the miracles of Christ. And I'm going to drop Matthew 16, which is also in the gospel of Luke, on them before Christmas. Because what's happening in Matthew 16 is we have the first person to come to the understanding of who Jesus Christ is as the Son of God. So in the Gospel of Luke, this is how Luke lays it out. He runs through all these miracles and we have the confession or the profession of Peter and then we go out into all the teachings. So what I'm going to do with the kids, we've run through all the miracles and they've seen all the power and all the glory of the Son of God. Now you you need to decide who this is. Is he who he says he is? And so the kids will be prayerfully working through these things as we walk through Christmas and we'll come back through Christmas. I'll roll into the teaching. 
But I think this is a passage that helps us better understand what's going on when Satan demands. So look with me in verse 15. Jesus says to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Now, this has nothing to do with my sermon, but every time I read that, I got to stop and explain that. You do realize if the children over Christmas come to the understanding of who Jesus Christ was, they will not get there because of their own understanding. It's not just a flesh and blood thing. It is a work that God does individually in every heart that comes to faith in Christ. If you understand who Jesus really is and you've put your faith in him, you need to thank God because it's God who did this work in your heart, not your brain. And so Peter comes to this conclusion. I know exactly who you are. You are the Christ. But notice verse 18. Right after that, the Lord says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, let me show you a little bit about what's going on here, because there's a play on words. You've got this word Peter, which is the word Petros, and it literally means small rock or stones. And so the Lord says, I say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, which is the word Petra. Probably Johnny Green's about the only person in here that remembers Petra as a Christian rock band. That's a different kind of rock. That is like a mountain. Y'all know on the way to Huntsville, right as you're coming into Gurley, I pointed out to Paige this week, I was like, look, they've cut that mountain in half and the whole thing's a rock. And they're scraping out that rock and they're selling that rock. The whole mountain's a rock. So when we get to this, this second word and upon this rock, it's a different kind of, it's bedrock. It's this massive foundation. So there's this play on words. I mean, literally, if we were going to translate it accurately, into English, this is what we'd say. I say to you that you are rocky, and upon this rock, I will build my church. That's what the Lord says. Now, this is very interesting because this has been debated throughout church history, and it's important for us to understand this morning. You see this word right here? What is this? You see that? What is this? What's he talking about? What exactly is the Lord going to build on? And you go, well, this rock. Okay, well, what's this rock? And you can only come to two conclusions about what is this rock that the Lord's going to build His church on. Number one, and I, I totally agree, I don't disagree, it's the profession. You are the Christ. Certainly anybody that's a member of the true church, the true church, professes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And his life was given on Calvary for our sins. Now, if that's your profession, you are a part of the church of the living God. And you'll always be a part of that church. But there's something else that's going on here. Because he's also relating it back to Peter in a way. And so we understand that Peter himself had a unique place in the church. He was God's chosen leader 
And the disciples recognize that. Scripture recognizes that. And we continue to recognize it. Peter had a chosen and a particular place within the church. Peter was, if you will, head. As we roll into the book of Acts and in the New Testament. So it has something to do with the profession, but it also has something, and I I don't understand it all, but I do know from the text, it has something to do with Peter himself. And therefore, we're reminded that Peter has a significant place, and we understand and remember that Peter is God's chosen leader. Peter is the one that God said, the Lord said, he's over the twelve. In a unique and significant way, not to be replaced or not to be repeated in any way, but certainly he had a unique place within the church. Now, I bring that up because I can't find a leader in the Bible that was not attacked by Satan. In other words, the Lord chooses him as leader and Satan goes, ah, I got dibs. Now, I could give you a long record of leaders in the church or the leaders rather chosen by God, Noah. And I can go on to the failure of Noah. We can talk about Abraham and we could talk about the failure of Abraham. We could talk about Moses and we could talk about the failure of Moses. We could talk about Jacob and the failure of Jacob. We could talk about David and the failure of David. But what we cannot talk about is Christ and the failure of Christ because there was no failure. But we can also talk about Peter and the failure of Peter, and we can read about it in the pages that we read this morning. You see, he was a chosen leader, which means there's a target on your back. And Satan had dibs. And Satan called in his dibs and said, all right, if he's the one, I get to take a crack at him. And so we see the Lord saying, okay, have your way. And so certainly he does. But another thing that I want to... Two more things, actually, I want to bring up about Peter's leadership. I can't find a leader who wasn't tested and tried and sifted by Satan in Scripture. And I also can't find a leader who didn't repent and return. And I I bring this up for our own sakes. Don't ever think, and I've told my, my own children this. Don't ever think that you can profess Christ and then 20 years down the road live in such a way as to not to deny Christ and think that you're in a relationship with Christ. Now certainly you can go your way and you can stumble and fall and spend a season away. How long was it that King David spent away from the Lord? One year. But every leader I find in Scripture was sifted by Satan, but also came to the place of repentance and returned to the Lord. The second thing that I want to point out about Peter's leadership is the Lord has a unique way of humbling His chosen leaders to lead His people in the way that He wants them to lead. And you think about all the leaders in Scripture, what, were the, what was the occupation of the majority of them? They were shepherds. Moses, let me give you 40 years of leading around sheep so you'll have some kind of clue as to how I want you to lead my people. And so when Moses gets back to lead his people, you know what the Bible says about Moses? He was the most humble man on the planet. Now that is one title I will never get. But if you're chosen by God to lead a family, dads, if you're chosen by God to be in leadership in some respect in the church, 
Let me tell you something. The Lord's going to work in your heart in such a way as to bring you to the place of humility. Pride and arrogance and lordship is not how he leads. And so if we're going to be faithful leaders, we will lead in the way that he leads. I could take you to Peter and I wanted to, but I know we don't have time. We do. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5. That's just too good. It's too good. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5. It's all the way at the end. Almost. First Peter chapter five, look at verse five. And I want to start in the second part of that passage. And I appreciate your Bible's turning because there's something, there's glory here and I want to show it to you. First Peter chapter five, verse five. Notice, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another for God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you. Now, you know, you want to know who wrote that? The guy who stood up among the twelve and said, listen, Lord, if they all fall away, I'm good. I'll be right there beside you. This is the guy when the Lord says, hey, Peter, Satan's demanded to sift you. I know. Listen, Lord, I will be arrested and I will die before I ever deny you. It's this guy who wrote these words. You see what grace does and you see what the gospel does. And this man so many years later writes these powerful words, right? Humble yourselves. Let God exalt you. Because you do not want to do that. You will find yourself on your face. Now run back to Luke 22. I'm sorry. Go back to Luke 22. Let's get back to where we were. Y'all are smart. Most of you got put something in that place. So we come to Peter's denial. And as I read this, I want you to ask the question, how could he? Why would he? Luke 22, look with me in verse 54. Then they seized him. And led him away, the Lord Jesus, bringing him into the high priest's house and Peter was following at a distance. Verse 55, And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I don't know him. And a little later someone else saw him and said, You're also one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also is with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And notice verse 61. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord and how he said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now that's human nature. I mean, y'all, it was like maybe a couple of hours ago that I told the Lord, there is no way I would ever deny you. And here he is standing beside a fire and he's already forgotten what the Lord Jesus had said to him. Jesus had to look at him to remind him. I said you would deny me 
and you just did it. And the rooster crows. So we get this idea, how, how, why? And it's a very simple answer. And the answer to that question is fear. Peter was absolutely terrified because he knew what they were doing to the Lord Jesus. And he didn't want any part of that. So here's this brushstroke that we've got to look at and examine our own lives. And we have to remember that at times we find ourselves fearful of what someone might say if we take a stand for Christ. We are fearful of what someone might feel toward us. The relationship might change if we take a stand on Christ. We're afraid of what someone might do. We're afraid of what it might cost. And we're afraid now. What's going to become of us when things actually get difficult for us to take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ and what His Word proclaims? If we're afraid now, what will we do then? Look at how everything was about to change for the disciples. Look at verse 35. And Jesus said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. And then the Lord says in verse 36, But now, but now. See, there's a different time. When I sent you out the first time, you aren't the ones that were under opposition. You aren't the ones that were struggling. You aren't the ones that were taking this firm stand in Christ. I was standing for you. But now... As I go to the Father and I send my spirit, you will be the ones standing for Christ. And see, now he gives these words of preparation. But now let the one who has a money bag take it, likewise a snapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Of course, they entirely missed the whole point. And one of them says, I got two swords. That's not what we're talking about, guys. But okay, let's just go. That's what happens to the Lord Jesus. In other words, guys, there's no, there's no need probably for you to have a sword right now. But you do understand one day we're going to wake up and everything has gone around that corner and there's going to be a need for a sword, not a physical one. There's going to be a need for you to take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're filled with fear now because you don't want to speak truth, because you don't want to hurt somebody or, or mess some relationship, you don't want to speak truth. If you're afraid now, what are you going to do? When all of a sudden it can cost you. We better get these things worked out now. Because we are going to have a but now one day. So let's get back to the Lord. I've, I've painted these little pictures. So on the one hand we've got Peter's denial. But on the other hand we have the Lord's faithfulness. So here's a question. Take a sip here. How is the Lord... How is the Lord able to be so faithful as a man in spite of everything and everyone standing against him? How is he able to do that? So let me see if I can get a slide up here for you because I want to give you three words. And there they are. I think it worked. It worked. The Lord Jesus had this unshakable trust in three things. And it's very difficult for me to separate these three things, but I'm going to try. But I'm talking about the same thing. Expressed in three different ways. The Lord Jesus had an unshakable, as a man, an unshakable trust in the Father's sovereignty, the Father's will, and the Father's word. And I put word twice. Sorry. Will is the last one. I need to mess it up. Sovereignty, word, 
and will. And I'll show you that in the text. Now, sovereignty. What, what is that? I'm sure you know. But it's what we talked about at the beginning. God's sovereignty means that God governs and guides all. Everything has been ordained by God. And as Christ comes to Calvary, which, by the way, is the greatest test of faithfulness in the history of time. Amen. You think about that. Faithfulness is not good until it's tested. And the greatest test that's ever been handed out was Calvary. And the Lord Jesus was faithful all the way, right? So, the Lord Jesus takes this rock-solid trust into the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 22. Luke 22, 22. Notice the words of our Lord. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. He knew exactly what was about to take place. And if you'll notice in Scripture, he had been talking about this since Peter professed Christ. Because the moment Peter professes Christ, the moment the Lord begins to say, I must suffer and die because of who I am. I am the Christ. And in the Gospel of Luke, he does it three different times. And so we get to this place in Scripture and the Lord says, I tell you that this Scripture, I'm sorry, he says, for the Son of Man in verse 22, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. It's even in the perfect tense. Hey, what's about to happen to me stands in the state of having already been decided by the Father. And he did it anyway. He knew it beforehand and he walks faithfully through it. Listen, the Lord knew these words in Revelations 13. And you only find this in the King James Version, but I, I rightly agree with its translation. The Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Amen. And Jesus always knew that. And he was always faithful to the Father. Now, not only was he faithful to God's sovereignty, he was also faithful to God's word. Look in verse 37 of the same chapter. Verse 37. I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what, is, what stands written about me has its fulfillment now. Another perfect tense. Now, I know this is communicating the sovereignty of God and the will of God, but I'm trying to separate these ideas for you because you need to understand it. When I come back around to your faithfulness, Jesus said, listen, these, stay, these things stand written. They cannot be changed. Therefore, I go to Calvary in absolute faithfulness to the Father. Listen, I realize Judas has just betrayed me for silver I realize that Peter's standing outside by the fire going, I swear to you, I don't know the man. I know all that's going on, but that doesn't change the fact that this stands written and I'm going to the cross. Because Jesus had an absolute trust in what the Father had written down. The last thing is God's will. Look at verse 40. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and he prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Now, don't get confused when Jesus is praying, Lord, if you can remove this cup from me. He's not talking about the physical suffering that he's about to endure. Listen, there were way too many Christians in the first and second century that suffered in very similar ways. 
That's not the cup. The cup that he is talking about is the wrath of the Father that's about to be poured out on the Son. You remember those last words from Calvary? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a part of that cup. You know, you talk about the Trinity of God and how can we ever explain the Trinity of God? This three in oneness sort of thing. And yet there was this moment on Calvary that we can't explain, but we hear what the son says. Why have you forsaken me? Was there some kind of rent or tear in that relationship? What happened in that moment? We don't understand, but we do know this. Jesus was so fearful of that moment that he was sweating drops of blood. And we don't understand that. Joyfully, he went to suffer and die. But fearful, if you will, he went to be separated from the Father and have the wrath of God poured out on him. And that's why you find these words. Father, if it, if it is at all possible, take this cup from me. Nonetheless, nonetheless, your sovereignty, your word, and your will is the only way. Not my will be done, but yours. You see, as a man, that's where Jesus resided in his heart. The Father is sovereign. His word governs all. And his will is perfect in every single way. And so that is his fight, faithfulness, right? So here we come to our faithfulness, right? What do we do about this? How can we walk in faithfulness like the one that has gone before us? Well, let me ask you this. What do you do with the sovereignty of God, the word of God and the will of God? You know, there's a passage here that I, that I was reminded of this week. I think that's it. Yes, Psalms 139. The psalmist writes these words, your eyes, father, have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. You see, we can say the exact same thing as Lord Jesus says. Wait a minute. These days have been determined beforehand that I might walk in them. You know, I'm, I'm walking in, in peculiar days right now. I'm so rejoicing that, that Audrey and Jonathan will get to see them in just a few days. I mean, when we had family prayer last night, we thank to God because we have entered the week that we get to see odd. And at the same time, me and my sister are going something through something together right now with my parents and we're watching them get sicker and sicker and it's more and more difficult. So there's this joy and then there's these tears at night on my bed and I'm caught in these two bizarre circumstances. But I'm not overwhelmed by my circumstances because these days have been ordained for me. Before there was yet one of them, they were written down. And I trust in the sovereignty of God, the word of God and the will of God so much. I know that God will glorify himself through me as I walk by faith in these days. And that's what we've got to do with circumstances. Listen, you're never going to be separated from the Father's love. The wrath of God will never be poured out on you. So you don't have to ever pray those words. Father, if you're willing, please take this cup for me. There is no cup for you. There is no wrath for you. The only thing that's left is circumstances. And some of them are going to be extraordinarily difficult and testing and trying. 
But yet we can walk through them by faith because we have a God who's walked in faithfulness on our behalf. And so we can trust him the whole way. And I say that with all the compassion in my heart for every single one of you, because when you go through terrible times, my wife and I, we weep for you. And we pray for you every single day. There's somebody in this church that we're praying for. We don't want difficult circumstances, but we can't keep you from them. But this is what we know. That the God who has predetermined, who is absolutely sovereign, the God who has written his word that heaven or hell can't change a period. And this God whose will is perfect in every way, we trust him. So we pray for your faith that you would walk in such a way as to have confidence in these very things. Remember, it was his faithfulness that justifies. And it's our faithfulness that glorifies. Now, there's some things that God has done that I want to point out, and I'll, I'll move through these very quickly because you have something going on more than me and Paige praying for you. Look at chapter 22, verse 31. And these are just a few things to encourage your heart, and we're done. God's doing a tremendous work on your behalf in order that you might be faithful. Look at verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. What? The Son of God praying on behalf of me? Or you or his people? Are you kidding me? I want to say, don't waste your time. I'm not worthy of a single thought of the Son of God. Yet we find in more passages that I'll show you in just a second, he intercedes on our behalf. Amen. That our faith may not fail. Now I can speak absolutely with all confidence and assurance. If you're in Christ, your faith will not fail. I'll show you that passage at the end. But at the same time, we think we're going to get close, don't we? We think we're going to get close. But you've got to understand the Son of God prays for you. Look at these passages. Look at Romans 8. Look at what Paul says. What then shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will we not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who are you going to find that can condemn? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Amen. What? Yeah. So the next time you find yourself tormented by your circumstances, you remind yourself what your Savior is doing. In the present tense, right now. Look at Hebrews. The former priests in the Old Testament, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. They died. But Jesus, on the other hand, because He continues forever, holds His priesthood permanently. Christ is our priest. Therefore, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. We have a continual mediator on our behalf. 
Your faith will not fail. It can't fail. And sometimes we have to remind ourselves of that. And it, it's not just that. Look at Romans 8, 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps with our weaknesses, for we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What kind of promise? Are you kidding me? Yes. That's what the Spirit of God is doing within you. He is interceding. But we don't just have prayers. We have a promise. Look back at Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again. Wait, it doesn't say if. There's no if in that text. It says when. And it's the same for us as the children of God. It's an issue of when, not if. Because we have one that intercedes for us. Let me skip some things because I know we're running late. So we've got the prayer. We've got the promise. And then lastly, we have the reward. Look at Luke 22, verse 28. Notice what the Lord says. This blows me away because he says it right before Peter's denial. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. What? And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. NASB puts the word stood. And I'm like, Lord, why would you say that? Because they have it. In fact, this is the, one of the only perfect tenses I can find that has something to do with me and you. Almost all the perfect tenses are have to do with God. He sets them in motion and, and they run their course and you can't change that. Here the Lord says, you've stayed with me in my trials. And in the very next verse, we go to the denial of Peter. What in the world is the Lord doing here? Was Peter faithful in all things? No. We talked about this when we were going through the Psalms. Was David faithful in all things? No. 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 But yet David writes these words in Psalms 26. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. And we're, we all want to go, no, you didn't. Have you forgotten? But this is what David knows that we need to learn. Psalms 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Peter's denial has been a forgotten thing in the mind of God. David's adultery has been a forgotten thing in the mind of God. Do you know why? Because repentance from sin is permanent. And so the Lord can say these words that blow my mind away. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And he's speaking in a sense that looks forward to who they are in Christ. And you realize, and I began to weep when I was studying through this and walking through this, and this is the last point I'm going to bring out, and we'll pray, so don't, don't let me lose you here. I, I got broken over this really bad. Because you do understand that we will hear those words not because of our faithfulness, but because of His faithfulness. You have stayed with me, and I'll be shaking my head. If I have a head to shake, I'll be shaking and going, no, I didn't. 
He will go, yes, you did in Christ. You stayed with me. And I'll have to confess with all of the rest, Lord, if we stayed, it was because of what you did. And it was not because of what I did. I stayed because you were faithful to me. That's the only reason I stayed. See this painting? And all of this is because of Christ. I mean, we got this glorious picture of the faithfulness of Christ in every moment of Scripture, and especially in the moments around Calvary. From a circumstantial perspective, from our perspective, it was coming apart at the seams. And you and I would say that about the evangelical church today. I don't know how many times I've said it. The church is coming apart at the seams. But from the perspective of God, no, it's not. No, it's not. No, the the Lord has things well in hand. And it's his faithfulness, if we'll get a grasp, will motivate and endure our faithfulness toward him. You don't need five points of how to be faithful. You need to see Christ and his faithfulness. And I won't have to worry about your faithfulness. He is glorious. But there is a path for you forward in faithfulness. It's very simple. Will you trust in him? Will you trust in his sovereignty? Will you trust in his word? Will you trust in his will so that when you face things, you can go, no, no, no. It is well with my soul. These things are challenging me to the depth of my soul, but it is well in the depths of my soul. Let's pray.